Welcome to the 27th episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare. We will see uniformed soldier or boots on the ground being replaced by private military company, autonomous weapon system, and cyber weapon. I'm Alessandro Arduino, your host, and we are very glad to have with us today Meya Nuz, Senior Fellow from Chinese Defense Policy at Military Modernization at IISS. Meya expert lies in Chinese cross-service defense analysis, China defense industry and innovation, as well as China regional strategic affair and international relations. She is co-lead at the China Security Project with the Mercator Institute for China Study, and she leads at IISS the research on China Digital Silk Road. Thank you very much for joining us today, Maya. Thanks, Alessandro. It's great to be here. So you have several hats regarding China security. Today, I would love to concentrate on two parts of it, that at the first sight, it doesn't look much, there is a combination and I'm talking about private security and China Digital Silk Road. So starting with uh, DSR, can you uh, present to our audience the evolution of the DSR, especially in the MENA region? The floor is yours, Maya. Of course. So the Digital Silk Road is often seen as a sub-branch of China's Belt and Road Initiative um, project. Um, I argue, however, that it's something quite separate from it, um, that it's almost taken on a life of its own. So if you think of the Belt and Road Initiative, this started around 2012, 2013, uh, and has expanded since. The Digital Silk Road is something that came online quite late. So 2015 is the first time that we see this really um, formalized in any official policy speech. And actually, when we think about um, you know, the way that the Belt and Road Initiative is structured in terms of policy documents and visions and strategies, actually, when it comes to the Digital Silk Road, we don't have any of that type of documentation. It's basically just a rollout of Chinese digital infrastructure, services, and companies globally um, uh, in, in, across all different layers of the technology stack from the hardwire, um, think of telecommunications networks in countries, submarine cables, all the way through platforms and services to the top. Think of things like data centers, um, think of things like um, uh, uh, FinTech solutions, e-commerce solutions, but also of course, notably security related um, platforms and services. Uh, these are anything that uh, ties uh, data and networks to law enforcement services that uh, governments would normally be in control of. Um, so we have an expanse of this uh, throughout the digital uh, Silk Road, firstly, starting really in China's own neighborhood. Um, so think of Southeast Asia as a prime location and then expanding outwards to the Middle East, Africa, even Latin America, and of course, also predominantly in Europe as well. So there's this entanglement of Chinese technology and Chinese companies in our digital economies around the world. Uh, and this is, of course, no uh, exception for the Middle East, where we've seen this proliferation of Chinese activity in the digital sphere, um, uh, ranging across the tech stack, as I said, countries looking to China in the Middle East for 5G network solutions. Um, notably, they have not pushed back to uh, the integration of Huawei's 5G networks and national networks in the Middle East or North Africa. 
Uh, and we also see some real sensitive areas of uh, the digital economy um, being um, led by Chinese companies in the Middle East and North Africa, things that have to do with personal data, um, with smart city platforms that link cameras and sensors to national government or company hubs. Um, and, and all of this, I think, is uh, really um, integrating uh, China into uh, the digital networks of these countries. Oh, I, I agree with you, as you mentioned, especially three things, smart city, data center, and China proliferation in the digital sphere. So definitely the digital Silk Road is not just the Belt and Road Initiative with 5G. A uh, few months ago, uh, we had uh, as our guest in BOTG, Professor Zhou Zhanghui. He's a Chinese expert on uh, private security. And we discussed extensively how the expansion of the Chinese private security industry along the Belt and Road is also linked with the Chinese commercial expansion uh, through the digital Silk Road. So in your personal opinion, is there or what will be the interaction between Chinese private security companies and the digital Silk Road? Just as we mentioned data center, uh, big data, flow of information, facial recognition, and so on. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting prospect for, I think, further research and one that you and I have discussed uh, quite deeply, uh, Alex. I, I think what we've seen in terms of the digital Silk Road uh, in and of itself is an evolution, right? We've seen an evolution from predominantly focusing on um, relatively simple, um, low-tech, um, you know, integration of national telecommunications networks and cables, so really the hard um, technical, uh, physical aspects of the digital economy towards a proliferation of companies in the services uh, space that build on those initial um, investments in hard wired technology in these countries. Um, what I think we're seeing now in the area of Chinese private security companies is a similar evolution. So moving from relatively low tech, um, uh, activity in um, the provision of security services and consulting towards um, perhaps uh, in some areas uh, access to weapons or a more predominantly um, weaponized role, though that is still very limited. And I think ultimately what we'll see is a development and a move towards uh, the involvement of greater high-tech capabilities in um, the private security space. I think that mirrors um, what we see, of course, as the understanding of security within China, where digital uh, and more traditional aspects of security are highly linked. And so that that is reflected in the, in the private security space abroad, I think makes sense. We already see some examples of that. Um, so we see some um, uh, Chinese private security companies, such as Huaxin Zhuan, uh, already advertise and market the fact that they're a high-tech partner uh, in the private security space. So, for example, using things like augmented reality applications or having their own fleet of um, unmanned aerial vehicles uh, to uh, provide uh, additional assistance. Similarly, um, China's Security and Protection Group uh, states that it provides overseas security management software, uh, security risk monitoring, and early warning software. So we see a gradual integration of these different technologies that almost mirror what we see in the private security space in China happening abroad. No, I think uh, this point is quite important, um, but it also clash uh, with some security, let's say, vacuum that is still along the Belt and Road Initiative. 
One, in my opinion, first and foremost, that there is a gap in command control in having PSC talking with PLA, talking even with peacekeeping mission at UN level. And then, as you said, yes, there is a mirroring from the internal function of security to the external one. But I was talking with a Chinese manager for a Chinese private security company, and he was mentioning that some of his people on board on vessel anti-piracy, I was asking him, if they are going to use drone or sophisticated anti-jamming system against the drone. And he said, basically, my guys have issue opening an email, figure it out when is their time to manage this kind of very sophisticated equipment. So you, you need the talents that carry a substantial price increase. And that's uh, sure can, can be an issue. But uh, looking with the lens of this technological revolution, that is going uh, on with the Chinese private security sector. Uh, do you think uh, that uh, PSC are going um, in the future, uh, not so far, to fill more this security vacuum gap and to interact uh, in a better way uh, with PLA or with Chinese peacekeeping mission abroad? I mean, I can talk to their interaction, perhaps with central government or the PLA. Um, in terms of, you know, this informatization um, process that we've seen within the People's Liberation Army, what you just stated about not being able to open or having troubles opening a, a simple email document, and perhaps that was said slightly in jest, or perhaps it wasn't, but, um, you know, there is there is a, 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 a an issue of recruiting um, the right high-skilled talent, um, both within the PLA and considering the fact that Chinese PSCs do recruit from PLA veterans, I would imagine that they're not necessarily in that sense recruiting um, the most highly skilled high-tech uh, workers uh, for private security services. Um, so that's going to be mirrored. And I think that will be a steep learning curve. And if, as you said, you know, high, recruiting higher talent, um, higher skill talent also comes with a higher cost and a price tag, that of course will, as you, as you argued rightly, um, be a problem for private security Chinese private security companies who, um, you know, one of their main marketing strategies is one being Chinese, but second of all, being a whole lot more cost effective and affordable than Western alternatives. So, so I mean, on, on the one hand, yes, there's an interesting prospect for them to fill that gap and to leverage data that is collected um, through potentially the digital Silk Road and to share that between different services and different government organizations. Um, I would say that though in the digital Silk Road, there is a concern about uh, the collection of big data, collection of sensitive data, um, you know, that espionage, I think, role and intelligence gathering role is something that has been documented anecdotally. Uh, in terms of collecting big data and gathering that and, and perhaps siphoning that back to China for um, you know, training of uh, algorithms. I think that is something that's a little still bit more theoretical and I'm not sure that we've necessarily proven that to um, you know, as great an extent. Um, but theoretically speaking, um, you know, that coordination of being able to leverage different uh, data uh, sources and share that between different Chinese actors, that, that is, uh, I think, something to watch moving forward. And as you said, if there's a command and control question um, within Chinese private security companies at the moment, that would, uh, in theory, help them professionalize. 
No, you underline uh, a concern that, uh, in some respect, uh, is a perception, uh, uh, but at the end, it's something that has been discussed uh, and is going to be discussed for a long time. Uh, at the end, this big data, where is going to end? And also the part uh, that you mentioned about training, uh, veteran from PLA definitely are not uh, most high-tech talented uh, in, the, in terms of capability. And it's quite interesting because we just discussed it in the previous BOTG postcard with Omri Lavi. Uh, he is the founder of Orchestra AI, and he was just discussing how his company that is leveraging uh, AI for cybersecurity, one of the first problem is to finding the right person, the right talent because everybody in the world now is looking for the same very scarce pool of uh, human resources in uh, high tech. And this is also something that uh, China is uh, it's already facing. So uh, getting back to perception, perception is quite difficult to deal with, but there is this perception that uh, big data in the hand of private security with high tech capability uh, is going to create issue, not only intelligence issue, but uh, uh, let's say just a very basic issue in terms of crowd control management, privacy issue, and so on. So moving from the normal friction between China, uh, United States, United Kingdom, a Western partner, and like-minded country, and country, for example, how, in your opinion, these companies are going to be perceived and uh, how big data collection can impact uh, in country where there are not many options. The option is Chinese technology or no technology. No, I think you're absolutely right on that. Um, the way that the digital Silk Road has been received in different countries uh, in the last few years, of course, um, has varied widely. Um, and I would say that when it comes to the perceptions and receptiveness for uh, Chinese uh, technology and digital ecosystems, you know, there's a, uh, a pull factor um, as much as a push factor in large parts of the world. We think of the pushback to 5G, the pushback to Chinese companies like Huawei, but really that's limited to uh, the US, US allied countries. And even then we see uh, within Europe, for example, a, a real foot dragging uh, in the last few years by some countries to actually um, take a clear stance on uh, their position with regards to 5G and Huawei, um, some uh, implementing very quickly legal precautions, others um, leaving it to telecommunications companies themselves to make that difficult choice. So um, I, I think we shouldn't overestimate um, the pushback to the digital Silk Road. And I think there is still very much room to grow for Chinese companies in the digital sphere globally. Um, what might hamper that, of course, and what might hamper uh, the ability of Chinese private security companies to take advantage of that also and to become integrated in that is um, China's um, ability to, the, the ability of Chinese companies to gain access to um, advanced semiconductor chips and um, core components, which are now um, sanctioned by the United States. Uh, that I think will have an impact on this rollout uh, and, and depending on how quickly I think Chinese um, it, semiconductor industry, for example, can uh, catch up is, is, is really going to be a determining factor. Um, but in terms of the perceptions locally um, with regards to Chinese uh, technologies, I think, um, as you said, there is very little alternative here, perhaps, for governments and, and companies who are not able to afford the G4Ss of the world um, and, you know, who um, uh, perhaps 
have different needs that Chinese private security companies can fill in the short term. I would say that for the moment, um, Chinese private security companies serve mainly a Chinese market uh, of, of Chinese companies rather than necessarily um, host governments. And in some cases, you know, they serve Chinese companies because host governments have failed uh, in providing security guarantees for Chinese projects abroad um, along the Belt and Road Initiative, for example. But to say that there is a pushback in Africa or the Middle East uh, to Chinese technology, I think is a huge overstatement. In the West, of course, um, we view um, uh, data privacy, um, uh, we have different regulations such as um, GDPR in the European Union uh, that really seek to limit the control of companies within the digital space and protect consumers uh, and private individuals. Um, we of course have uh, strict, I think, uh, regulations on things like facial recognition and crowd control management uh, when it comes to the leveraging of technology that's not necessarily going to be the case in um, the majority of countries where the digital Silk Road uh, and Chinese digital companies operate. Um, think for example of um, cases of uh, leveraging facial recognition systems or um, access to uh, personal health data in um, certain countries in the Gulf by Chinese companies. That is something that I think we're a lot more wary of in uh, the West, but in other countries in the world, it's seen as an opportunity. It's seen as an opportunity not to, to not just um, enhance digital economy, but to become more competitive in relation to other countries in the region, to become the foremost uh, digital economy uh, or, or, or high-tech uh, economy in the region. You know, these are different considerations that perhaps drive other countries in how they um, interact or consider Chinese uh, technology companies and their role in their economies than, than we have in the West. Oh, I see. Uh, when you just mentioned uh, the host government uh, calling uh, for a private military company not being the case uh, uh, in Africa for Chinese private security company and so on, but just jumping into my mind, the case of Mali requesting Wagner Group as a support while at the same time they were pushing out uh, the French military and uh, part of the uh, counterterrorism operation uh, in, uh, in that area. So moving from boots on off the ground to boots on the ground, uh, now unfortunately uh, all the attention is focused on the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, and uh, it comes to the fore uh, more often than not the Wagner model. Uh, this Wagner group uh, that, in my opinion, wrongly defined as private military is a quasi-private military, is just a, an umbrella definition for uh, a paramilitary actor. Uh, but it's something that we have been discussing extensively here in the OTG, looking at this definition as a very convenient umbrella term for Moscow public deniability. Now that the friction between uh, uh, Beijing and uh, Washington is increasing by the day, uh, and I already witnessed that several Chinese private security are limiting their cooperation with the West. In your opinion, there is going to be more room for cooperation with Russian PMC, and I don't say necessarily uh, Wagner in this respect, or China will go in, uh, in another direction for the development of their own private security companies? I mean, that's a really, again, interesting question. And I, the answer is, I don't know. I would say that there's an, if I'm totally honest, 
I would say that what we're seeing at the moment with the relationship, the triangular relationship between China and Russia and China and the West, you know, predominantly um, led by or, or, or within the framework of China and the US is that yes, Chinese private security companies might be limiting the role with the West, having learned, of course, in some cases, very keenly from Western private security companies. Um, but on the other hand, I wonder whether Russia's performance in Ukraine, as we discuss, you know, the lessons learned by PLA, Russian military cooperation, um, uh, following uh, you know, the performance of Russian um, uh, armed forces in Ukraine, will have a similar, will similarly be reflected in, in Chinese PSC and Russian PMC cooperation. I mean, what I would see here is predominantly an opportunity for learning for a Chinese PSC force that is perhaps stepping into a more uh, active conflict role rather than necessarily, you know, the, the safer security services consulting role that they've played in the past. So there might be an opportunity for learning here, but on the other hand, um, is the reflection that we've seen where uh, of, of how these services, or at least the Russian armed forces have um, operated in Ukraine so far, similarly raising doubts within the Chinese PSC community about what they could be learning from Russian PMCs. That's a hypothetical question. I have nothing to back that up, um, but that is something where, where my mind goes instantly of what exactly would they be learning? Or is it the case actually that if we look at how Chinese PSCs are becoming more high-tech, is this an opportunity where Chinese PSCs can actually set themselves apart and provide um, a, a, a niche service that actually others um, potentially could learn from. Uh, so which way is that is that relationship going to go if it does evolve at all? No, that's um, that's something that uh, I, I agree. Uh, for me, it's quite uh, difficult to, to just look and forecast in the future quite near. Probably it's a question that I'm already trying to ask to Mr. Eric Prince uh, since he founded FSG Group uh, in Hong Kong with CITIC, but up to now, I didn't have much luck uh, in having the chance to have it uh, on the record. But unfortunately, uh, our time is running out uh, and we just have time for uh, the latest question for our today podcast. And we just end with a question that we are asking uh, to all of our guests. And um, again, uh, I'm asking you to gaze at the crystal ball and to give me a prediction for the future. And it won uh, this same question that I asked in the before podcast to Omri Lavi. He, he basically refuted to answer. It changed everything so fast. Even three years will be quite difficult to make prediction, but I'm not asking you to make a prediction on three years. I'm asking you uh, what, in your opinion, would be the future of security management in a complex environment in the coming 30 years? from the perspective, especially of Chinese CSC operating along the digital. So my question is, if the Chinese private security companies have, have started to evolve to operate more in you know, a, a quasi-combat role or to be armed, um, uh, to be able to provide the protection services, looking more and more like traditional private military companies, but less like private security consulting companies, you know, taking into consideration the potential for um, a technological revolution within um, the Chinese private security companies, do they even need to evolve to um, become armed? Do they even need to evolve to, uh, you know, be prepared to play a role in a more conflict, active conflict uh, zone? 
um, if they're able to harness data, har link into national networks, uh, collaborate or coordinate with national governments, perhaps there you know, is a, a role whereby they can provide security services without necessarily um, putting themselves in danger or, or playing the traditional role that we've seen them try to play in certain cases. Maybe they can just skip that, that, that part of their evolution altogether and go straight into becoming um, you know, a, a, a digital security force rather than a, a private military company in and of itself. Thank you very much, Maya, to being with us today. Thanks to our audience, and we are looking forward to have all of you in our next podcast, BOTG. Again, thank you very much, and have a great day. Thanks, Alex.